Our first reading is from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, chapter 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he'll have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Our second reading is from Second Corinthians, starting with chapter 6, verse 1. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favour I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favour, now is the day of salvation. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path, so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships and distress, in beatings, imprisonments and hard work, sleepless nights and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. Through glory and dishonour, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what does righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For what are the temple of the living as God as God has said? I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you and I will be a be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence of God. Thanks, guys. Good job. My name's Stephen, one of the ministers here. Have you, have you ever seen this um, comic up on the screen? goes like this, there's two ducks sitting on a park bench and one says to the other, geez, the way you describe it, having kids sounds horrible. And the second one says, yeah, welcome to parenting. And so the first one says, well, I'm convinced, you've convinced me, I'm never having children. And the second one says, 
that's a shame. They're pretty awesome. And so the first one says, you just finished saying how terrible it was. And the second one says, well, sure, it's mostly drudgery and frustration, but it's still like the best thing ever. And so the first one says, that makes no goddamn sense. And the second one says, yeah, welcome to parenting. Being a parent is, is amazing, but then at other times it's, it's agonising. I remember thinking when I first became a dad that it was um, crazy that to get my motorbike licence I had to do multiple training days and exams, but to become a dad, even though it's so difficult at times, that they let you loose on your kids with no exam, no training, nothing. And so it's kind of lucky in a way that, that they don't start running around talking back and vaping in the school toilets. But then even the fact that they're constantly growing, constantly changing, constantly needing you to adapt, to always be calm and always connected and always consistent, but at the same time always super flexible and always one step ahead of them, it's hard. Happy Father's Day, by the way. I reckon, you know, I was a pretty easygoing teenager, at least compared to my psycho sisters. They gave my parents a really hard time. And I remember reading something and thinking how true this was, um, that, that being a parent of teenagers is kind of like holding on to a rope while on the other end they're thrashing around. And your job as a parent, you know, no matter how hard they thrash, is to hold that rope and to resist the urge to want to thrash back. As a parent, it's kind of like you're holding on to the, the bigger picture for them. And no matter how much they seem like they want to chuck out the bigger picture and, and do things that don't make sense, things that are self-destructive even, your job is to keep calling them back to the bigger picture. Keep calling them back till they're ready to hold on to that bigger picture for themselves when they turn 40 or something. Like if they're mucking around at school, just kind of throwing their life away, your job is to kind of help them try to take it seriously. If they're in with a group of friends who are leading them, you know, to not so good places, your job is, is to help them try and make better choices for themselves, maybe better friends. Sometimes you do it gently. Sometimes you do it firmly. You do it when they're being rational, but you do it when they're being irrational as well. And it can be pretty hard. In that part of the Bible that was read for us just before, it's kind of like the people that that letter is addressed to are behaving like irrational teenagers. And the guy who writes the letter, Paul, he's kind of like a parent. In fact, at one, one point, you notice he says, I speak as to my children. Like a parent, he, he wants to call them back to hold on to the big picture. But like some teenagers, some of the things these people he's writing to are doing are self-destructive. Have a look at the, the first thing that Paul writes in this chapter. He writes, as God's co-workers, so Paul and those he works with, as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. This is the big picture that he has in mind for them. He wants them to receive God's grace but not to receive it in a way that, in the end, is useless to them. So to understand what Paul's writing here, basically we've got to understand three things. 
What does it mean to receive God's grace? But also, what does it mean to receive God's grace in vain? And then finally, what does it mean practically to do what Paul is urging them? What does he actually want them to do? So that's, that's what we're going to do. We're going to start with the first one. The big picture that Paul wants for these people is he wants them to fully, properly receive God's grace. So what does that mean? What does it mean to receive God's grace? One of the best ways to see what it means is to look at Paul's own story. Paul, he writes this letter in about the year AD 55. So it's about 20 years after Jesus died on the cross. And he writes to a church in Corinth, which is in modern-day Greece, and he writes to them about two years after he started this church. And like we've already seen, Paul sees himself as God's co-worker. But if you rewind back, not a couple of years, but a couple of decades, do you know what Paul was doing with his time? He wasn't starting churches, he was trying to stop churches. He didn't just think Christians were a bit odd or a bit annoying. He thought Christians were a massive problem in the world. He thought Jesus was a fraud and Christians were stupid for being deluded by him. And actually not just stupid, but dangerous because stupidity is kind of catching. And so he was trying to stamp out this new religion, Uh, Paul put some of the Christians in prison. He even was kind of there when some of them were killed, put to death. Paul wasn't at all interested in God's grace freely offered in Jesus. What he was interested in was himself. He was a a self-righteous kind of bloke who was only really interested in what he thought was right. But what happened in his story is that his life was completely turned upside down. At one point, he was on his way to a place called Damascus to to try and deal with some Christians that had popped up there. And on the way, he literally meets Jesus. There's a bright light and he's knocked to the ground and he hears Jesus saying to him, why are you persecuting me? Paul thought Jesus was a fraud, but suddenly he sees he was wrong. And now he faces the very one he hated having harassed the very ones Jesus loved. But instead of getting what he deserves, Jesus does something unthinkable. He offers Paul grace. He turns Paul's life upside down. First, because he he forgives Paul, but then second, because he gives Paul a completely new mission. He sends Paul on a mission to help other people hear that God is offering them his grace too. Now, when you think about it, Paul's kind of like the the perfect messenger for this message. Not because he's he's so good, but because he's so bad. If God offers Paul grace, then the point is, that's what he's offering to everyone. That's God's big picture, big picture plan for everybody. So now Paul sees himself as God's co-worker, trying to help other people see they need God's grace too. And so just two sentences um, earlier in this letter, he he wrote these words. He said, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal to us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. 
So do you see from Paul's story what it means to receive God's grace? It means to be reconciled to God. And in the very next sentence, the one that Brian brought to us at the beginning, Paul explains how that reconciliation is even possible. He says, God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus takes Paul's hatred and violence into himself at the cross and gives him in exchange his goodness, his rightness, so that Paul can be reconciled with God. That's grace. Now, Paul's story, it's extreme, right? But the point is, it's not unique. Instead, his story shows that's what God is actually on about with everyone. So to the Corinthians, to the, the people that he's writing to, he says, God's made a way for you to be for your, your sin not to be counted against you. Jesus has taken your sin onto himself. You should receive his grace. You should be reconciled. That's what Paul would say to anyone, to us even. And maybe the Corinthians, maybe us, we might think, but Paul, we're not like you. We haven't killed any Christians. But Paul doesn't think that matters. He thinks we still need to be reconciled with God. It's, it's kind of like when you think about it, it's kind of like as a dad, would I be happy to have an exceptional child who just did exceptionally at school? You know, it was kind of an all-rounder, excellent at footy, excellent at cricket, even excellent at netball. Their teachers love them, got a part-time job and their boss just loves them and their customers love them. They're respectful to everyone. They keep their room clean. Everything about them is just exceptional. Would I be happy with that if at the same time they're not at all interested in me? They won't talk with me. They pretty much ignore me. When I ask how their day was, it's like I don't even exist. And Father's Day comes and goes and there's nothing. And they won't even look at me. If I was okay with that, if I didn't think that there was a problem in the relationship that needed reconciling, there'd be something wrong with me. And yet that's not all that different to how we treat God. You know what? That kind of passive hostility, I reckon it's even worse than open hostility. But whether we're openly hostile to God or passively hostile, Paul says God nonetheless is there and he's offering grace. He's wanting to be reconciled. It was huge of God to offer Paul grace, but you know what? It's huge of God to offer us grace as well. And so what it means to, to receive God's grace is this. It means first we see we actually need it, and then second, it means we actually want it. And then third, it means if we receive it, we're reconciled with God. Now, the people that Paul writes to, the Corinthians, they've seen that they need God's grace. 
They've wanted God's grace. So now, why is Paul writing to them and saying, as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain? Somehow they're at risk of, of receiving God's grace in a way that's kind of empty and ineffective, in a way that doesn't reconcile them with God. So, so next, what we need to understand, if we're going to understand this part of the letter, is we need to figure out what does it mean to receive God's grace in vain. And Paul explains what it, what it means in what he writes next, although it's a little bit hard to understand. So have a look at it with me and see, see if we can figure it out. He says, the reason they shouldn't receive God's grace in vain is, in verse 2, for God says, in the time of my favour I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. So this is Paul quoting from the Bible, from the Old Testament. And he explains why he's quoting it. He says, I tell you, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. Now this is a bit tricky, but think about it. Paul's quoting Isaiah, written 700 years earlier than, than when he wrote this, which is all about pointing forward to when Jesus would come and, and bring God's favour and salvation. And so Paul is saying, now is that time. Now is that day. Now is when God is speaking favourably, graciously to them, offering salvation. And that's God's ongoing message to them. That's what Paul told them two years ago when he started that church. And that's also what God is saying to them right now. So really, the question is, what is their response to what God is saying? And here's, here's his point. If their response was, yes, I want that last year. But today, as he's writing that letter, if their response is, I'm not sure I want this. Then they're absolutely at risk of receiving God's grace in vain. Because if next year their response is, actually, I don't really care about being reconciled to God. Then they've received his grace in vain. A friend of mine moved here from South America. Uh, he's the strangest South American I've ever met, I've got to say. Uh, instantly when he got here, he hated soccer and he loved AFL. I don't know why. I don't know where it came from. I once tried to explain to him why in Australia we, we try to get rid of you know, invasive pests like foxes and rabbits and plants that don't belong here to protect our environment. And I told him why I thought this was a good idea. And so do you know what he said to me? He said, you're just like Pauline Hanson. <laughs> he was, he's the funniest guy. I, I, was his, um, I was his best man at his wedding. And he wanted to get married at 4 a.m. in the morning. And the minister said, the earliest I'm doing is 6 a.m. So that's when he got married, at 6 a.m. in the morning. He's a character. He's a great guy. And, and with this guy, even before I met his fiancée, before she came over here from South America, she was all he could speak about. But you know, about 10 years after they got married, this was about 10 years ago, uh, he, he, uh, he rang me, I still remember it so clearly. I'd, I'd just arrived 10 years ago on holidays in Noosa. And I hadn't seen him for a couple of years at this point. But he rings me and he's in tears. 
And he just found out that his wife had been seeing another guy. Couldn't believe it from everything that I'd ever seen in their relationship over those 10 years. I just wasn't expecting that. And I could tell from from that conversation that he just wasn't expecting it either. It it came out of nowhere. And then over those next six months, as I, I kept touching base, seeing how they were going... He was saying to her, I I just want to be reconciled. I don't care what you've done. I just want you. It was pure grace. It was huge of him and and it was genuine. The offer was there to her. But you know what she said? She said, yes, I want that too. But then you know what she did? Over those six months... She kept going back to that guy again and again until the relationship was dead. She kept saying she wanted reconciliation. She accepted my my friend's offer of grace, but that was in vain. Because really, she didn't want to be reconciled. Really, she wanted someone else. And I tell you what, it, it was awful to watch. Heartbreaking. And Paul is writing to some people who are in danger of doing that, but to God. The people he's writing to, they're in danger of saying, yes, I want what Jesus is offering. I want his forgiveness. I want his death in my place. I want to be reconciled with God. But then in reality, they're flirting, these guys, with the idea of not really wanting to be reconciled with God, but wanting something else. And in this letter, Paul is telling them their lack of of interest in God is awful to watch. It's heartbreaking. But what does Paul actually want them to do? We've seen he wants them to receive God's grace and he doesn't want them to receive it in vain. But what's he actually got in mind, practically speaking? What does it mean practically to do what Paul's urging here? Well, for them with their issues, we see it means a couple of things. First, it means that they should stop fighting against Paul. You know, they've been like teenagers who've who've become self-destructive for some reason. And Paul, he's urging them to work with him, not against him. You know, some teenagers, they they like to define themselves in distinction to their parents. And and there's nothing wrong with that. They're trying to find themselves, uh, trying to find themselves independently of their parents. But that's quite different to defining yourself in defiance of your parents especially if your parents genuinely have your best interests at heart paul says to them even though he might have been brutally honest with them at times he's had nothing but their best interests at heart look what he says in verse 11 he says we've spoken freely to you corinthians and opened wide our hearts to you We're not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. Paul tells me if they look at how he's been with them, they can see he's been genuine. He's shown them that he's perfectly committed to the the same big picture that he's calling them to. He's personally suffered for it. He's not been selfish or fake. He's done everything so that they and so that others can see the big picture. 
And so the first thing that Paul wants them to do is to realize he's on their side. He wants, wants them to admit in their hearts that, that the big picture that he's been urging them to is still the right one. He wants them to agree that what matters is that they're reconciled with God, that they live as those reconciled with God. We see the second thing this means practically for them in, in verse 14. He writes, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Now, I don't know about you, but this kind of feels like it comes out of nowhere. Like, why is he suddenly talking about this? But we see why later in the letter. Because Paul says to them in chapter 11, verse 3, he writes, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And then he says in the next verse why he's afraid of this. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. And then in verse 20 he says, In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or slaps you in the face. Basically, the church there at Corinth, they've they've stopped listening to Paul, and they've started listening to these other people who aren't helping them at all. These people, they might talk religious, they might even talk about Jesus, but Paul says they're actually unbelievers, that they don't believe that what we really need is to be reconciled to God through Jesus. If some drug dealer comes along and wants to be friends with my kids but really just wants to exploit them, I'm going to react like Paul here. And I'm going to tell my kids, you've got to break ties with this guy or you're going to end up in some very dark places. Paul tells them in in verse 18, what God promises us if we'll be reconciled is God says to us, I will be a father to you and you will be my son's and daughters and so paul says if we want that if we if we really want that then in chapter 7 verse 1 therefore since we have these promises dear friends let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit perfecting holiness out of reverence for god he's saying to them if we want that embrace being reconciled with god Don't fight against those who encourage you to walk with God, he's saying to them, just because you don't like what they say sometimes. Paul is saying, work with me. And he says to them, don't embrace those who will tell you what you want to hear, but then lead you away from Jesus. Now, that's their particular issues. But their issues may not well be our particular issues. So let me just finish by trying to capture the essence of of what this meant for them, but also really what it still means for us today. The first thing to see today is that what matters big picture for every single one of us is still receiving God's grace. God wants to be reconciled. But reconciliation always takes two people. It takes God offering grace 
And it takes us recognizing our need for grace. And there's no question that God is offering us grace. Jesus dying on a cross for us, it answers that question. The real question Paul shows us here is, do we want it? I used to know this this guy called Sam when I was at uni. He was always a bit odd, but I thought we were friends. But um, one day I I passed him at uni and it, it was just me and him. And so I said to him, hi Sam. And he just didn't respond at all. And I thought, that's weird. Like, <laughs> I don't know how he, he missed it. He must have been in a trance or something. But then the next time I passed him, same deal. He just didn't acknowledge me whatsoever. He looked straight through me, past me. Somehow I'd done something to him, I, I guess. I don't know. It keeps me up at night occasionally. I mean, this is 20 years ago. I have no idea, but I was, I was dead to him. I found it really off-putting. But as much as I wanted to reconcile with him, while ever he refused to even see me, there was no chance. It was obvious he didn't want to reconcile, and it always takes two to reconcile. Now, if you've never taken God's offer of grace, offer to be reconciled seriously, why not? This is the big picture that that God wants for your life. And whether we have open hostility or kind of passive hostility, like my friend Sam, either way, we're not reconciled with God until we come to him and tell him that's what we want. But is that what we want? Is that what you want for your life? Because keep in mind, what this letter tells us is that God doesn't want a token kind of reconciliation with us. As we've seen, God wants, wants to be father to us. That, that's high bar reconciliation. God doesn't want us to receive his grace in vain. He wants us to receive his grace in a way that brings forgiveness, brings meaning, brings life and joy forever because it brings him into our lives forever. God's not interested in pretending we're reconciled. He wants to know us and he wants us to want to know him. Ultimately, isn't that what every good father wants? You know, they don't want their kids just coming around once a month, politely for dinner, enduring it and then chuffing off as soon as they can. Fathers want deep, real An ongoing relationship. So is that what we want with God? Knowing God like that means realizing that now, this day and every day, it's the right time to respond to God. It's not like we get reconciled and then we have seasons where we just sort of forget God and and don't bother with God. Just like with kids, just because the relationship is, is good right now, it doesn't mean I kind of think, great, now I can neglect them. Now I can stop listening to them. Now I can stop caring, stop working at being close to them. See, what Jesus did to make reconciliation with God possible, that's, that's static, that's once for all time. Jesus dies for you so you can be reconciled. That's a one-off event. But embracing that, 
embracing reconciliation, embracing God as Father, like all healthy relationships, that's dynamic. That means hearing him out today and every day means not listening to people who will lead you away from him today and every day. And it means as we find stuff in our lives that he doesn't like, we don't push him out of the picture to make room for that kind of stuff. We deal with those things, knowing that being reconciled to him, that is the big picture of our lives. Let me pray for us. Father, help us to, to stand in proper awe of who you are, the kind of God that whether we're openly hostile to you or passively hostile, either way you stand there wanting to be reconciled. You hold out grace, offer grace. Lord, help us not to dismiss that lightly. Help us to see Jesus dying on the cross, rising to life. You've paid a price that's worth giving you our attention to consider if that's worth receiving. Help us, Lord, to see it is worth receiving, not just for this moment, not just now, but for all eternity. We pray, Lord, that we would see that our lives, the big picture of our lives, is about knowing you and wanting to know you. We ask by your Spirit that you would move our hearts, that that would be the case. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.